this, Lord, right now as we get to dig into your word, we just confess our faith that we believe that this word has authority, that you have a way of opening up the eyes of our hearts. You have a way that when we are willing, when we are open, when we are vulnerable, when we have a posture of submission, your word never returns void. And I pray right now, Lord, that as we prepare to hear from you, I pray, God, that we would just unplug from all the distractions and all the other things in our lives that can cause us to lose the focus, and Lord, that we would just be plugged into you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the hope of your son. Have your way in this time. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever felt bound to belong? Bound to belong. Have you ever felt this, that, that, that you're bound for something? Here in Romans 7, I believe that Paul is getting after this call that we are bound to belong. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me, in a moment of transparency, honesty, I don't often feel bound to belong. I often feel, hear this, bound to fail. <laughs> like, I know what I need to do to be successful. I know what I need to do to be healthy. I know what I need to do to be, at least in the eyes of our society, successful. But yet I find myself oftentimes feeling like I just can't get there. For example, Tomorrow's the first day of school. Now, I don't know if you got kids or you're in education. I have five children, and five children on five different campuses here in Chowchilla. So you can just pray for God's grace and peace about 7.35 a.m. when we're supposed to be in the car heading to our journey. And I think about the first day of school. I think about, you know, we have our... First day of school outfits. In our family, we all have new shoes. That's like a thing. Fresh white shoes. My boys always get white shoes. I'm not sure why, but we've gotten up. We've hopefully had a breakfast for the first day of school. We've, uh, we're, we're, we're all a little anticipating the year. We're thinking about the classes or you know, the, 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 the tryouts are coming or the sports or, or, or seeing our friends. And, and we have these ideas of how the year is going. And then for me and Brianna as parents, we're excited to say goodbye to our children for a little bit. We say a prayer, we're thinking like, man, we're, gonna, we're just going to continue to be blessing our kids, and, and, and we have these ideas, and then we look, and we, we got to take that picture of, of you know, kids' first day of school, and we got to post that on the gram, or on Facebook, or wherever you're on, and we're looking around, and we're watching all of our friends doing the same, and there seems to be this law, or this idea, it feels a little plastic, 
So I think about the first day of school, and then I think about the last day of school. And I think about my home on the last day of school. And, and typically, it's more about just like, kids, you're on your own. Make sure you're in the car at this time. I hope you have shoes on, and I hope you took a shower. I hope you brushed your teeth, but just be in the car and let's go. And all these ideas that we had of what we're supposed to do, and we think about it, and somewhere along the way, we got a little sideways or just got a little busy or less disciplined. Perhaps you're not in education. Perhaps you're not uh, taking kids to school tomorrow or going to school. But I think we can all relate in some way to this idea of these voices in our life, these expectations that we have that we seem to miss. For example, I, I know that it'd be really good for me to run every day. And yet I find myself only running once, maybe twice a week. I know that it'd be really good for me to um, stop drinking Dr. Pepper. I know it'd be good for me not to have a cheeseburger regularly or to have donuts in the morning, but a good day for me starts with donuts and ends with a cheeseburger and a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> it's like I know in my head that I'm supposed to do these things and I know it's what's best for me and my health, but yet I find myself stuck saying yes to the things that I, don't, I know I shouldn't say yes to, but I want to. Today in Romans 7, Paul's getting after this. He's getting after this idea and these voices, this, this perception of the way that we are to live. And he uses this word about those voices called the law. The law. Now, we're going to get into what he means by the law in the, in the, the biblical sense of the law. I've been reading this book called um, Law and Gospel. And in that, this book, there's this chapter on the law, and I found it really helpful. They write about, this guy named uh, David Zoll writes about this idea that, that in today's society, we all live under a law. And there's big L law, that would be the, the law of God's word, the, 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 the do's and the don'ts of following the Lord. But then there's also just little L laws that we live with every day. Expectations of our family, expectations of society, expectations that we put on ourselves of what we believe you must do to be successful and to succeed in life. He says this, he says, one of the most puzzling aspects of human behavior is our ability to know exactly what we should do on everything, from keeping up with the laundry to abstaining from adultery, and yet we fail to do it. He goes on and says, the little law, thou shalt be beautiful, or thou shalt be successful, is often more measurable than the law, big L, of God as well as more salient in people's lives. That is, the pressure to be well-liked or valued at work is often stronger than the pressure to be a perfect person. And while holiness is usually invisible, things like salary, number of social media followers, and body weight can be easily measured. So it's easiest to talk about law where most people, regardless of beliefs, actually live to start from the bottom up. So as we see the word law, I would encourage you to think about these, 
ideas, these expectations that are on you. Now, here in Romans 7, Paul's talking about the law of the Bible. And it gets, I've been in Romans 7 all week trying to understand, trying to divide. It gets a little confusing. It gets a little challenging. He talks about law. He talks about death. He talks about sin. He talks about adultery. He talks about, there's all this going on. And as I've been studying this, I found myself um, going all sorts of different directions. I don't know if you feel this in Romans. It is very rich and really confusing at times. And I found myself encouraged by the words of Peter as we dig in to Romans. Peter said this about Paul and his writing. He says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, Paul wrote Romans, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Hear this. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them on these matters... There are some things in them, look at this, that are so hard to understand. Which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So there's this invitation. I would encourage you as we dig into Romans not to get discouraged, not to say, I can't get this. I believe that God has given us minds to truly Seek out clarity, and I believe God's going to do that with us today in Romans 7. And as you look at Romans 7, and as we think about this struggle, here's the big idea. Here's the big idea behind this idea of being bound to belong. You see, the gospel story is a story of liberation from the bounds of the law to eternal Belonging in Christ. The gospel story, we say, Jesus changing everything, is the story of liberation from the bonds of the law to eternal belonging in Christ. If you have a pen or a pencil, you're taking notes, I would circle the word bonds and the word word belonging. And we're going to see Paul unpack this truth here in verses 1 through 4. If you... We're with us the last time we were in chapter six. Paul just wrote about the new Adam and the old Adam and how we're called to live under the new Adam. He's continuing this conversation. He says this, what shall we say then? Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, he says he's speaking to those who know the law. He's talking to the Jewish Christian in this moment. The one who grew up studying the Old Testament, grew up studying the Torah, the the, the law of God, which we'll get into in a second. He says, I'm talking to you. Don't miss this. He says that the law is binding, there's that word bound, binding on a person, only as long as he lives. And then Paul unpacks this with an illustration. He says this. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage, right? When you make vows in a wedding ceremony, you say what? Till death do us part. Paul's using the illustration of of marriage vows to talk about this reality that, that you have these vows to each other. He says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. If she was married to him and she went off and lived with another man, 
while she's still married to this man, this would be breaking the bound, the bonds of the law that says she's made these commitments to this man. But, look at what's happening here. If her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now hear this. Paul is not giving a commentary on divorce. He's not giving a commentary on relationships here. He's using the, this idea of the vows of marriage to talk about the freedom that we have from the bonds of law. He's saying, the husband has died. The one you were married to, the law, has died. And because of that, you are now free to marry another. Look at what he says here. Likewise, he explains this. He says, my brothers and sisters, you also, hear this, have died to the law through the body of Christ. In chapter six, he talks about we have been baptized with Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross, we, we believe in him and we've died with him. The, the old has gone. We, have, we, we are no longer a slave to sin and we've died to the law through the body of Christ so that, and here's that word belong, so that you may belong to another. Now, Notice what Paul does here as he writes about who you belong to before you belong to a husband who would die. All right? Now look at this. To him, Jesus, who has been what? Raised from the dead in order that what? We may bear fruit. Bearing fruit, do good works have a natural growing out of us, the fruits of the Spirit for God. Notice here, the husband, we were bound to the law, now that is dead through the, through the, death, and re, through the death of Jesus, but Jesus is resurrected, and now you belong to what? You belong to Jesus. And will Jesus ever die? Never again. You now belong to the eternal one, the eternal king. Now maybe you're asking, okay, so what is the law, the big L law that Paul is referring to? What is the law? What is this law that he keeps talking about and referencing? Uh, I, I looking for a good definition in my theology books and my Bible dictionaries, and, and I went to one of my favorite sources for learning the scriptures. It's this YouTube channel called The Bible Project. One of my favorite professors from seminary was a guy named Tim Mackey, and he's developed this Bible project, and he has one video, I think I referenced it in the notes, where he talks about the law. I would encourage you to go and watch that if you're confused about what the law is and the story of the law. But I love the way he defines the law. Look at what he says here. He says, the law, or the Torah, that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the rules and the regulations of the scriptures, the first five books of the Bible, is fundamentally, fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others, right? What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor's neighbor as yourself. Jesus said the entire law is summed up in that. And we see the law in scriptures, it, it starts with Moses when God gives the 10 commandments, the Decalogue to Moses, and these are the, the 10 
principles for the people of God to live by. And if they follow them perfectly, they get to be in the presence of God and, the, and they get to worship the Lord and, they, and they're with him. It's like they're back in the Garden of Eden. But then you follow the story of the Bible and you see that the people fail. Surprisingly, immediately, Moses has the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain. You remember the story? And what are the people doing? They are worshiping a graven image. So he goes back up the mountain, redoes this, and then God starts to give more laws. Actually, there's 616 laws in the Old Testament for the people to live by. And the entire point of those laws is not about restriction. It's not about legalism. It's about loving God and loving others. But the whole story of the Old Testament, the law that the, especially the Jewish Christian reader that's hearing this gospel from Paul in the book of Romans, the whole struggle is that they can never keep the law. Now there's some who say, oh man, I am a good law-abiding citizen. <laughs> but if we're honest, especially in light of the way Jesus talks about the law in Matthew 5, where he says, if you even, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say if you even look at a woman lustfully, you are committing adultery. That there seems to be this reality of the law that just breaks us. And in verse 7, verse 6, Paul finishes by talking about we belong to Christ. And he says this in verse 6. If you look at it, it says, and because of that, we now have the spirit within us, a new law. And really, you could go straight from verse 6 right into chapter 8 where we get into the Spirit. But Paul anticipates the Jewish Christian reader who says, wait a minute, Paul. Are you telling me that the law is sinful? Are you telling me that the law, that I've grown up studying the law, learning the law, trying my best to live by the law, doing all of these rituals and all of these rites, and, and, and I've been taught this, are you telling me to just throw it out? And so in verses 7 and following in chapter 7, Paul is helping the Jewish reader who's been, who loves the law to understand what the law is and what the law isn't. And the first thing he wants us to understand as we think about who we're bound to is this. The law exposes our sin, but you are the bad guy. Or we could say the law exposes our sin, but sin is the bad guy. The law is not the bad guy just because it exposes our sin. He unpacks this in verses 7 through 11, but really summarizes it really well in verse 21. Look at what he says. He says this. So I find it to be a law that what I want, when, I, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. In other words, the law is used by sin to ruin us. In verses 7 through 11, if you look at sin is really personified, and it says it's, it's, it's uh, what does he say? At one point he says, sin came alive. Another point it says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetedness. It's this theology, this, this philosophy of what we would call the forbidden fruit. 
You know this. You've had kids. You've seen this. You tell your child, hey, don't put your finger in the light socket. What does your kid do? Well, I wonder what that would do. It can't be that bad. You tell your children, don't go and and do these things. Or you're told, don't go to this area. Don't partake in this thing. And you think, well, but I wonder how that might be fun. It really goes back to the Garden of Eden when Satan shows up and Adam and Eve have been told by God, don't eat from this fruit. And Satan says, oh, but did God really say that? What Paul is telling us here in verses 7 through 11 and summarized in 21 is that what the law is doing is it's not the evil one. It's exposing the sin that is dwelling, the sin nature that is in all of us. Our flesh, we use the word flesh to describe the struggle. Douglas Moo, a commentator, says this. He says, the law is God's good, holy, and spiritual gift. In verse 12, he actually states this. He says, it's God's good, holy, spiritual gift. The law is good. But it has been turned into an instrument of sin because of what he calls the fleshiness of people. The law is good, but sin has used it as an instrument to bring about our ruin. Secondly, in verses 15 through 20, Paul wants us to understand that this, the the law is good, but hear this, it's not our savior. The law is good, but not our Savior. It has a purpose, but it can't save us. Look at what he says. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We see this theme throughout the Psalms. What what does David say in Psalm 119? He says, "I, I love the law of the Lord. I meditate on it. I delight in it. It's like sweet honey. He says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, on the inside, I understand this, but on the outside, there's still this struggle. Another way we could say this is don't blame the law, but don't expect it to save you either. Don't blame the law because you fall short. But don't get it twisted where you think That the law itself can save you. Just go read the whole Old Testament. That's a great story of a lot of people that had wonderful willpower. Look at Solomon. God gives him wisdom. He writes the book of Proverbs. What does he do? He still falls to sin. I love in our devotionals this week, we got to read a little bit about this section. Jeff Trost wrote one day that I thought was really helpful and he quoted this commentary that, that kind of talks about the relationship of the, of the law and sin. He says this. He says, imagine a sunny day at the beach. You plunge into the surf. Then you notice a sign on the pier that says, no swimming, sharks in the water. Your day is ruined. Now, is it the sign's fault? Are you angry with the people who put it in? Put it up? No, the law is like the sign. 
It is essential, and we're grateful for it, but it doesn't get rid of the sharks. This, this is our relationship with the law. And we feel this struggle. And hear this, the reason why we see all throughout the, New, the Old Testament this, this love of the law is because the law is a picture of the character and the perfection and the holiness and the goodness of God. This is why Jesus, when he said, I did not come to abolish the law, I didn't come to throw the law out, he says what? I came to what? Complete it. And so what is the Christian response to this? I love what Paul does here. I'm not gonna have it on the screen, but I'd like to just read verses 15 through 20. And the reason why I wanna read it is, this is like my life verse. I find it so relatable that Paul Formerly Saul, on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up, he changes his life, he's not ashamed of the gospel, he's written half of the New Testament. God has done a mighty, powerful, beautiful work in Paul. Some would call him Saint Paul. Look at the raw transparency and honesty here. As Paul writes about this struggle, inside I know these things to be true. On the outside, I, I struggle with actually doing them. Look at what he says. He says this, for I do not understand my own actions. Anybody can relate to that? Just me and you, Seth. It's okay. We got it. He says, for I do not do, look at this, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I don't want to yell at my kids. I know I shouldn't yell. Just yesterday, I acted out in anger and raised my voice in a way that was hurtful. I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin, remember, sin's the bad guy, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is the flesh, this is the struggle that is in my flesh, for I have, hear this, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I can't do it. I want to, but I can't. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. As I read this, as I relate to this, as you relate to this, and whatever the, the law is speaking into you, saying you must do this, why are you not a better mom? Why are you not a better husband or a better worker? Why, why, are you, why is your business not going the way that it should? Why are, why, why, why are you so concerned about these things? Why is your team not winning? Why has your children walked away? And our identity, all the laws, it's breaking us and, and, and it's, it's leading us. Hear this, the Christian response in this is not, that's not me. 
The Christian response is not, I don't have the struggle. No, the Christian response is this, I'm desperate for Jesus. Desperate. There is a desperateness about our faith. And it's not just, you know what, I went to camp and I, or I, I prayed a prayer and, and I said a thing. No, this is a posture of the Christian faith that said every day, morning by morning, I wake up and I say, Lord, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. This is my flesh, but Lord, wretched man that I am. Look at verse 24. It says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Don't miss this. He's calling out for a savior. The apostle Paul is calling, calling out for a savior. Who will deliver me from this body of death? There's this desperation about him. In John 8, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes that knew the law. And they, they, they had put all of their stock in being perfect. And he said this. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is that they that bear witness about me. What are you bound to, beloved? What are the voices that are telling you how to live? What are you bound to? We're in our teaching team this past week, and Eddie brought up one of our one of these great hymns that talks about this question: Who will save me? Look at this, read this, hear this. He says this from Martin Luther in a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Beloved, as you think about this desperation, our conviction our only comfort is this, that I am bound to belong to Jesus. The great Heidelberg Catechism says this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is it? That I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian response is a response of desperation for Jesus. And out of that desperation, there's also this hope. It's really fascinating. You see it earlier. He says that because you belong, in verse 4, because you belong to Jesus, you will bear this fruit. And so you say, the Christian response is, I am desperate for Jesus. And second, I am determined to serve my resurrected king. I'm determined. I love that word, determined. I'm determined to serve my resurrected king. This is the reality. 
Look at verses 25 and following. He says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Beloved, as you think about this, as you reflect on this, parents, students, teachers, as you think about going off to school tomorrow and and checking every box and getting everything right, the most important thing that we can do is to just continue to confess, I am bound to belong to Christ. He is my savior. And a little teaser for next week. In light of that, look at verse one of chapter eight. There is therefore, now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our tendency is to say, I belong to this old husband, but he's dead. The law that says you must live this way for these things, you must, this is what success looks like, this is what uh, uh, true humanity looks like, this is where you're gonna find meaning in life. These are the things that you must run after. Jesus is telling you and telling me, I died to that. I died for that, and you can die with me through your faith, and you can be resurrected and belong to the ways of the kingdom, the ways of the kingdom that are upside down and that are different, the ways of the kingdom that wash the feet of others. I'll leave you with this one idea. It seems to me that our focus needs to shift away from the things that we're supposed to do. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I still need to go and run every day. I need to. I still need to be a good dad. I still need to be a good father. I still need to be a good husband. Those are all things, but those are all things that should flow out of my response to belonging to Jesus. And I pray that we would continue to work at centering our hearts on this truth. I believe the gospel is this. The gospel is adoption. The gospel is that God goes and he finds his orphans and he finds his lost children and he gets them. And we rest and we rest in the arms of our good Father. Never forget the first day that I got to hold my daughter, Selah, after we flew to China and got to adopt her. I'll never forget the fear in her eyes. I'll never forget the screaming in the room. As she was overwhelmed by this, these new people, but I'll also never forget when I got to hold her and she was in her father's hands and then she did this. I call it this beautiful sigh. She's crying and she goes. There's this sigh of belonging to God. There's a sigh of knowing that when God looks at me, he doesn't see all the things that I haven't done or the things that I should do. He sees a child that he has put his spirit in and that he's calling to live in a way 
it is a part of who you are. And before we get into all the things, all the little L laws and all the laws, do not overlook the battle cry that we are bound to belong. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I pray you speak this right now into the hearts of everybody here. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the confession of our faith, Lord, that we belong to you. And I pray, Lord, that as we respond in faith, as we sing that you be our vision, as we, as we sing this, this one verse, God, it says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. I'm not here for other people's accolades or, or glory. You are my inheritance now and always. Lord, I pray that in this moment as we respond, that you would just help us to see the beauty of the gospel, the call to belong, and Lord, that may we respond with a determination to serve you in light of your love for us. Hear our prayers, Lord. Speak into this space. In your name we pray, amen.